Welcome to St. Louis on the Air. I'm Sarah Fenske. Chef Rob Connolly may be best known as a chef who forages, but the acclaimed chef-slash-owner of Bullrush is about far more than that. Foraging is just one way Connolly has been exploring the culinary history of the Ozarks region. He's particularly interested in the history of the area prior to 1870, and he's gone so far as to hire an intern to help him research that very topic. And together, they're exploring not just what the white settlers ate, but the cuisines of others in the area. That includes includes both enslaved people, freed slaves, and the tribes who are indigenous to the area. So joining me today to talk about not just a restaurant, but a fascinating research project is Chef Rob Connolly. Rob, welcome back to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. And we're also joined in studio today by Gabriel Shoemaker. He's a senior at St. Louis University, majoring in history and Russian studies, and he's working as Bullrush's intern this school year. So Gabe, welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Okay. Um, So, Rob, your chief focus is what people ate in the Ozarks before 1870. Why that date? Well, ultimately, we're trying to answer the question, what is Ozark cuisine? And I'm not so interested in the textbook answer or the technical answer, but more retelling the stories of the voices from the past. And so when we look at that question, it's how do we have a pure answer, uh, uh, an undiluted answer? Because after 1870, once the trains are going into the area and newspapers are filtering back from the East Coast, all of a sudden we saw recipes that looked identical to things back East. And so by going back further in time, we're able to really capture the essence of what it means to be in the Ozarks before the trains were bringing food supplies in. Now, I know that getting good information from that time, it is not as simple as just Googling, although I know that's what we all like to do to get our information. Gabe, I'm wondering, what kind of primary sources have you been consulting? Yeah, and so a lot of what we have looked at is we have looked at um, firsthand letters from the region. Um, And so a lot of those, unfortunately, are not digitized. That's been one of the big challenges. So we have to physically go to these archives, um, be they in Little Rock, where Rob has gone, or down to Rolla in Missouri S&T, where I've done a lot of um, work. And we have to use those letters then to kind of parse through them and see what sources and resources we can get about the food. And you say you're sort of parsing through them. Is this like searching for a needle in a haystack, or is it more just looking for one paragraph in a, a two years' worth of journals? It can sometimes feel a bit like a needle in a haystack. Um, All of the letters are really useful to read for a broader historical context, but when you're looking for food, um, you kind of have to parse through potentially family drama or how the weather is or prices, Um, and eventually you'll get something where we know they're raising cattle, but sometimes you have to dig in a bit. So tell me about that example of we know they're raising cattle. Why, why is that something, Rob, that's important to you to know? <laughs> well, so uh, I'll start with saying that um, we didn't serve beef in the restaurant for the first eight months. And that's because in the research, even though we knew there was beef in the Ozarks somewhere, we couldn't find any documentation of it. And we figured out why a little bit later, which was I was looking more in the interior of the Ozarks, which is hilly and wooded. So there's just no comment about it. As the research expanded and we got to some more of the peripheral areas of the Ozark Plateau, then it levels out geographically. And so then we start seeing letters that talk about the cattle. At that point, it's fair game for the restaurant to use. And uh, we, we say oftentimes in the restaurant, it's more interesting what we're not serving than what we do serve. 
You say it's fair game for the restaurant to use. I'm kind of wondering how strictly you hew to this standard of you want it to be something that was there um, back 150 years ago. Um, are you holding to that rigorously or is it more inspiration for what you're serving? Well, uh, every day is a little different. Depends how tired I am and how tired my staff are. But we we have to answer the question, why is this on our menu? Not with each dish, but with each ingredient. If we can't answer that authentically, then we don't serve it. And I know that um, what you're exploring here isn't just what the white settlers to the area were eating, even though we might think, oh, that's a complicated enough research question. There were other people living in this area even before that. And joining us by phone today to talk about just that is Dr. Andrea Hunter. She's the Director and Tribal Historic Preservation Officer for the Osage Nation Historic Preservation Office. So Dr. Hunter, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you bet. I'm glad to be here. So thinking about the Osage and their time living in the Ozarks, what do we know about what they were eating before um, they began to have contact with European settlers? There were a whole suite of foods that were being utilized, ranging from some of the the wild uh, fruits and nuts that were being collected and small seeded plants that were being used for a variety of, of purposes from uh, using them as seasonings to medicinal purposes, uh, plus the domesticated uh, plants that they were using, the most prominent that people know about, the corn, beans, and squash triad, um, was certainly uh, very popular for the tribe. And then how did that change um, once the Europeans arrived in their territory? Well, it was a pretty rapid change, I would say, because you've got uh, the traders coming in and setting up uh, trading posts. The fur trade was rapidly becoming uh, transparent and going to thrive across the, uh, the Midwest and out into the plains. And with that, uh, they brought their commodities and they set up these trading posts. And soon we started seeing uh, some of the uh, staples uh, being changed. For instance, flour was one of the one of the big ones um, that stepped in and and sure enough changed a lot of the cuisine. Um, besides, you had other things like sugar and potatoes being brought in, uh, butter, <laughs> and they were trading. You know, they would have chickens, and of course, they would have eggs that would be brought in. And so, when they were close to these forts uh, and trading posts they would trade for these commodities. Um, if you're listening to our conversation, we're wondering if you have questions for the experts we've got here about the cuisine of the Ozarks or about what it was like there 150 years ago. You can give us a call at 314-382-8255. That's 382-TALK. Or you can send us a tweet at STL on air, or you can email us at talk at stlpublicradio.org. So, Rob, we know that, um, you know, what Dr. Hunter is talking about, the cuisine that, that was being eaten by the Native Americans, how does that end up translating in a dish that you might serve at Bullrush? Well, one of the challenges we have right now is we're gathering this information for both the indigenous people and the enslaved people. And um, quite frankly, I, I'm, I'm not ready to use it yet because I, I have a bigger question that I have to answer as a business owner. And that is, how do I do that authentically, respectfully, and not appropriate their information? Um, 
You know, for years I've worked with Sean Sherman, who's known as the sous chef. He's Lakota. And Nephi Craig, who's with the Western Apaches uh, back when I lived in New Mexico. And, you know, that's their story to tell. It's not my story to tell. So there's two things. I can use the ingredients. That's easy enough. Those are fair game. But to be able to tell a customer why that ingredient is on the menu, um, I'm not quite ready to do that yet because I just I don't have that permission. And so what's it going to take for you to get to a point where you feel like, you know what, I'm comfortable with this? You know, you're asking me this the day that uh, top of the news was, well, one of the news stories was the cancellation of the book tour for um, the book about the immigrants crossing the border um, being written by a Caucasian woman. You know, it's a touchy issue and one that I think any majority person who is trying to take on a minority piece of knowledge needs to tread very carefully. And it's not so simple as someone from the Osage Nation saying, go forth, you know, we, we give you our blessing. I, I don't think that's it. It's um, how, how do we celebrate their wisdom and their knowledge in a way that they are absolutely comfortable with? Um, I, I don't have the answer to that. It's, it's going to be an ongoing discussion uh, until the day we close the restaurant. Dr. Hunter, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that. Um, do you feel like Rob is sort of asking the right questions there, even if he's not quite yet at an answer? I believe so. I think that uh, I think working, for instance, with our tribe, with some of the uh, foods that we utilized, I think is just a, a collaboration that's going to, to happen and matching up with some of our cooks and maybe even bringing them uh, to St. Louis Mm -hmm. and to have an exhibition uh, of the types of foods that we had, using the ones that we cook today or the ones in the past. I think just having that Native voice is really important. Yeah, that's, that's exciting to hear. Um, we're talking today to Rob Connolly. He's the chef slash owner of Bull Rush. We're also talking to Gabe Shoemaker, who is his um, intern from St. Louis University and helping him with the historic research. And we're also joined by phone by Dr. Andrea Hunter, who's the director and tribal historic preservation office officer for the Osage Nation Historic Preservation Office. Gabe, you've been sort of scouring these records of the settlers. And I'm wondering if they talk at all in anything you've found about about, you know, sort of being in this new world, whether they talked about trying new foods that they hadn't known um, back in Europe and, and how they felt about that. Yeah, um, there's actually a very interesting um, tidbit we get. It's actually from the same letter where we discover first that they were um, raising cattle in these regions. This is from a settler from south of Fayetteville um, in northern Arkansas, and it's around Christmas of 1866. And um, his mom has decided that it's a good idea to roast a possum. A possum. A possum, yes. And so <laughs> everything that I have heard is that that's not a particularly great dish. Um, but going through this letter, both he and his mom liked it, and their friend that they invited over could not stand it. So there was a real difference of opinion on whether a possum should be uh, roasted. Absolutely. And what's really fascinating is in that same letter, it talks about there being so much plenty. So I mm-hmm. think it wasn't so much a food that could be associated with not having enough or as a food of even need. It was they were doing what every other culture and people did, and that was using the foods that was around them. So, Rob, in terms of that possum, does this mean you might be tempted to put a <laughs> possum on Bull Rush's menu? What I just heard is they should have had a sous vide set up before, <laughs> and they probably could have cooked that possum much better, you know, because that's what we do is contemporary interpretation of historic Ozark cuisine. That's interesting. But the answer is no, we won't be serving possum. We won't be serving possum. 
<laughs> Dr. Hunter, I know that um, you said game was also really important to the native people's diets. Um, tell me a little bit about that. What kind of uh, meat were you, were you seeing the tribe use back in the day? Well, of course, bison uh, was very popular, um, and they used also deer, elk, and then some of the smaller animals as well. Um, the possum was one of them. So they were eating uh, possum. Ot- yes, and otters, beavers, skunks. Can you believe that? <laughs> <laughs> Rob, are you feeling inspired here? There's, there's some real options here that are plentiful in Missouri these days. I see Rob is sort of politely passing on that question. Yeah, I'll pass on the skunk dish. (laughs) Dr. Hunter, how has that ended up changing over time? I know that the Osage were were sort of compelled to leave Missouri. This was very much against their will. When they found themselves in different states, did they take all of those traditions with them, or did things end up changing? Well, there were certainly changes that occurred um, because of our removal from our hunting territories and you know, being uh, actually banned from coming into the state of Missouri after we had to leave. Uh, The Ozarks, of course, was one of our main areas that we went and hunted and collected from, and that certainly changed when we moved over into the Kansas Reservation. Our, Our cuisine changed quite a bit, and it was, you know, moving from our traditional foods right into more focus on some of the commodities. And uh, it was a real change for our society. Is there a sense that that affected the health of the people um, in any big ways? Oh, absolutely. Besides the the diet changing, of course, there was also disease that was coming in and afflicting the populations, and our numbers were decreasing quite dramatically. And the health, uh, certainly from... Uh, the food change was really critical, and that's something that we're we're looking at today is trying to understand those changes and trying to bring back some of the foodstuffs that we had, uh, bringing back the bison uh, in our ceremonies and, of course, growing our own uh, Osage corn and squash and beans and providing those to our uh, uh, community members when we have feasts. So... Mm-hmm. We're starting to bring uh, to bring these foodstuffs back. That's really cool to hear. Um, now, Gabe, I know you've been doing all this research into these primary sources, and I understand that you intend to incorporate everything you're learning on this internship into a capstone project you're doing for St. Louis University. So first off, what is a capstone project, and then what are you working on for it? Uh, absolutely. So that's something that... Um, St. Louis University sometimes requires of graduating seniors to do is a kind of a summation of one of their key focuses of their work. Um, and so what I am doing with this is I'm going, I'm attempting to um, put together a general ethnography um, of the region in the 19th century, as we've kind of been discussing, and finding how those trends, both amongst white settlers as well as um, the enslaved people, can be found um, in contemporary culture. And so showing that this study is very much present today. It's not just something for people who really love food or who are academics. So you're looking into this question of enslaved people. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that's got to be harder to find primary sources on. What have you been able to tap at this point? Yeah, and so um, unfortunately, and this is something I have to be mindful of, a lot of the written sources I have found have been um, written by white authorities. Um, for instance, one of the um, sources which I'm going to be using extensively um, this semester was written by the Arkansas um, Superintendent of Education, and that's dealing with how to deal with newly freed um, peoples inside Arkansas immediately following 
um, the Civil War. And so it's something that I really need to be mindful of when we're getting these narratives um, from the in-power group, not to take their word as fact, because it's very much colored by their own internal biases. And do we have a sense that what enslaved people were eating in the Ozarks was significantly different than the people who had slaved them? I can't speak to that as well as others can. Um, it's, and I don't. my expertise on that front, unfortunately, hasn't sure. extended to the culinary. And I know um, you've still so. got a whole semester to go yeah, here, yes, too. Yes. So I don't, I don't want to put you too much on Not the spot. All. But it's interesting, Rob, how some of these issues you're exploring, um, they're both academic in terms of what Gabe is, is learning from it. But they also are resulting in you're putting meals on the table. Yeah, for me, every time I listen to Gabe talk or today Dr. Hunter talking, I think, I'm glad I'm surrounded by academics. And I mean, people who know my background know I have a doctorate from Purdue. So I I love that world. Um, But at the end of the day, the customer who comes in is coming in for a meal. They're not coming in for a lecture. So my job is to take this information and interpret it in a way where I can feed them information that, um, you know, feeds their body, but also feeds their mind, but doesn't overwhelm. I don't want to turn people off by that. And and so as Gabe's talking about the enslaved people, to me, what I'm looking at is a very specific um, reference I found to a slave cemetery in St. Uh, Genevieve County and trying to see if we can't get the names of the people who were at the plantation, who are likely buried in that cemetery to see if we can't capture their story. How does that story then translate into a dish? That's much more interesting to me than, you know, Gabe is looking at census data, which shows the number of enslaved in each county. And that's crucial to understand the context for the discussion. Um, But I'm not going to talk about census data when I present a dish of venison to a customer. I want to go to the phone lines here. Karen is calling from Baldwin. Um, Karen, hi, you're on St. Louis on the air. Hi, thank you so much for this program and for this discussion. Um, There has been uh, so much of a whitewash on the history of enslaved people and indigenous people in Missouri, and we all come together over the dinner table, over the welcome table, and over food. And last summer I had the opportunity to attend a dinner that was catered in Minneapolis by the sous chef. Mm. And it was a wonderful, wonderful meal. One of my colleagues had thirds, not just seconds, but thirds. He just loved it. And Karen, and, when, when you say a sous chef, you don't mean that in the restaurant sense. You mean a chef who was of, of Sioux heritage, correct? No, I'm speaking of the sous chef. the Sean Sherman. The, uh, yeah, the, the James Beard awarded chef and his company. Okay. They, they catered the dinner. Yeah, and actually, Karen, we're in discussion with Sean right now to do a dinner here in St. Louis um, sometime this spring. Oh, I, well, I I intend on coming to the restaurant because I want to be able to continue this conversation and maybe even help connect you with um, some local people who might be able to get involved and bridge this gap because I also really appreciate your approach and the respect and your sensitivity and not um, appropriating the culture, but... Um, creating a bridge to bring two worlds together, I think is wonderful. Karen, Karen, thank you so much for that, and thank you for your call. We did also get a question by email from Paul. Um, He asks, Rob, how much wild protein are you allowed to use? He says things such as crow, venison, et cetera. So the the health department does not allow for any proteins that are procured in ways that are not USDA-processed. So if a deer has been hit by a car, uh, no, you can't use that deer. <laughs> no, absolutely not. <laughs> it seems like a real shame, but 
there could be some good purpose. One last um, question before we go. Both Gabe and I believe Dr. Hunter had mentioned the idea of some of the native plants being used for medicinal purposes. And I'm curious at all, Rob, if that's something that, that you've explored or if you're limiting this more to what you can serve. No, in fact, that was my starting point years ago back in New Mexico. Um, there's uh, an author, Daniel Mormon, who has a, a couple books. Um, the one that is most useful to me is Native American Medicinal Plants. And he's an ethnobotanist. Um, you know, it's again, it's a it's a technical book, but it's such an exhaustive book, meaning comprehensive exhaustive. And it's been a really good resource for me to start the conversation before I dig in deeper uh, to either uh, more firsthand information or more contemporary information. And Gabe, in terms of what you're finding, have you been finding a lot of um, references to that in, in these primary sources? A decent amount. And a lot of it is kind of things that we still see um, the legacy of today where it's these home remedies. So one, for instance, I found um, a cure for whooping cough, hmm. um, which seemed to promise very positive outcomes, you know, with a succession of symptoms in about two hours and you'd be cured in five days. So whether how accurate that is, but it's still really fascinating to see these snippets of how people were trying to deal with these very real issues. I hope you're saving all those because those could be very useful (laughs) to people out there. Beyond just a good meal, we might be learning old ways of of dealing with some big problems. So I want to thank all of our guests for being here today. This was such an interesting conversation. So Gabriel Shoemaker of St. Louis University, uh, thank you for joining us. Thank you. And Rob Connolly, owner of Bullrush, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Andrea Hunter of the Osage Nation Historic Preservation Office, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, you're very welcome. And we do look forward to hearing more about how this collaboration um, that's going to happen between Bullrush and between the Osage Nation, I think this is going to be really exciting for the area. This is St. Louis on the Air on St. Louis Public Radio, 90.7 KWMU. Support comes from the Missouri Forest Products Association, committed to conservation and careful management of the state's forests to make them more resilient and better habitats for wildlife. Choosewood.com.